You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org or follow us on social media to receive all of our updates. In this episode, we will listen to chapter 2 of the audiobook for Let the House of God Be Built. If you are interested in listening to the full audiobook, you can find the links to purchase it in the show notes. This chapter continues the story of a group of young believers seeking the Lord to find a place to meet for the breaking of bread, prayer, and other church meetings. The Lord leads these brothers and sisters to meet in bars, cinemas, and nightclubs before miraculously providing a house on Halford Road. Let's listen to chapter 2 of Let the House of God Be Built. Chapter 2 A House on Richmond Hill The Community Centre After a few months of meeting in the Townsend's home, we felt that we really had to meet somewhere else. We were wearing out the home of those dear believers. Therefore, we began seriously to seek the Lord as to where this place should be. In one of the scriptures which the Lord had given us, he had said, Thou shalt remove from thy place to another in their sight. See Ezekiel 12 verses 1 to 3. It was at this point that we heard of the community centre, which was next door to the synagogue in the heart of the town of Richmond. It was certainly within sight of the church to which I had belonged. I went to inquire of it, and they said they had a room on the top floor that they could rent us for a reasonable price. It was the Royal Richmond and Twickenham Photographic Society's room. The walls were covered with the most beautiful photographs, some of which we had to turn toward the wall before we could decently meet in that room. In fact, it was one of our steward's jobs to go through the pictures before anyone arrived and turn certain ones toward the wall and later turn them back when all of us had left. However, to reach this room, one had to first go down into the basement, pass through all the stage props, go through a very ill-lit cellar and then up some rickety steps to the top floor. Sometimes the person who was supposed to open up on a Sunday did not arrive until about five minutes past eleven, or even later, and we were supposed to be meeting at eleven a.m. These drawbacks disturbed us, but we accepted it because of what the Lord had said. Elders and Deacons During our time at the community centre, the Lord blessed the fellowship. We grew in numbers and several got saved. We met there every Sunday morning and evening and had prayer meetings and Bible studies in private homes. It was there also that we made a big mistake. We appointed elders and deacons because we saw it as a biblical pattern. The pattern was not wrong. It was the way we appointed them which was incorrect. We discovered later that the Apostle Paul never appointed elders or deacons on his first trip, but on his second which was often 18 months or two years later. In other words, he waited to see how the believers were developing and he watched for the growth of spiritual character. The body of Christ is spiritually organic. A believer who is to be an elder or a deacon grows in such a way that it will be clear to all the members of the body that the believer concerned has the right character and spiritual gift. We learned one of the greatest lessons about the church through this mistake. We learned that the church is in the resurrection life of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the will of the head known to the members. The Taking of the Astor Club Although we had been blessed greatly by our time in the community centre, 
we realised that there were many drawbacks, and thus we began to look for another venue. On one occasion, I was looking at different places in the centre of Richmond when I saw a little notice. Apply to Burton's for the place above. Just before that, I had met old Mrs. Cager, John and Arthur Cager's mother. She was a most godly woman and a strong prayer intercessor. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for a place for us to hold our meetings. My dear, she said, that is a big work. I said, well, I'm just about to give up. Do not give up, she said. I'm shopping, but I will pray. I said, whilst you're shopping? Oh, no problem at all. I will pray whilst I'm shopping. Do not give up. The place that was advertised on that little note was a nightclub, the Astor Club, for which we had prayed in those four months in 1951. It had been closed down by the police for immorality. This place was in the old arcade that had been bombed during the Blitz of London in the Second World War, and was left more or less in ruins. Anyway, I went to Burton's, the tailors, and a big man came out and asked me, What do you want? I said, I have come about the advertisement. He said, What are you? I said, We are a group of Christian young people. What do you want it for? For meetings, I said. That is a very strange thing, he said. I understood it was not on the market, I said. He said, An hour ago I received a go-ahead to rent it. I'll give you the first option for one pound a week for the whole lot, but you must be prepared to be tipped out at a week's notice. Now, the Richmond Council had an argument with Burton's the tailors, so although they owned the property, the council was blocking their development of it. We understood from one of our brothers who was working for the council that there was no chance of Burton's being given the go-ahead for probably 14 years at least. So we took it. It was on the high street of Richmond, opposite the post office. Eventually it was developed when Marks and Spencers purchased it from Burton's, and they were in great favour with the council. When we took it, we had to clean up the whole place. We had to shut our eyes while scrubbing the graffiti off the walls. It was not a very nice place. We had a service in which we spiritually sanctified the whole area, and in particular the premises which the Astor Club had occupied. Of course, some of the local Christians became very upset about us. Oh, they said, first they go to cinemas, then they take steamers, and now they are meeting in a nightclub. What next? Where else will that boy lead them? We had a new carpet for the main room, and huge interlined curtains for the very large windows to shut out the noise of traffic. The material for those curtains came from an Auschwitz survivor in the town and the lady who made the curtains was another survivor who gave the making of the curtains as a gift. This place was absolutely central. We were able to go out and fish people in from High Street and other nearby streets, and a number got saved. We were now able to have both the prayer meeting and the Bible study in this new place. Was the Lord moving us? We were only there for a year when suddenly one day in the winter the water poured in through the roof. Now what was the point of us mending the roof, indeed doing any of the necessary repairs, when we could be tipped out with a week's notice? Unofficially we could be there for 14 years, but we wondered. Then suddenly I came in one day and found a very officious man walking about. 
Later, he became a good friend, but at the time he was extremely overbearing. He was going around tapping walls and ceilings. I thought he was nuts. Excuse me, I said. What are you doing? Excuse me, he said. Have you got permission to meet in this place? I said, what has that got to do with you? He replied, I happen to be the chief building inspector for this area, and I understand you're meeting here as a church. Have you got permission? For one thing, that whole fire escape has got to be fireproofed. We can close you down, you know. I said, I did not know anything about this. He said, then we'd better get moving. After that, he became reasonably pleasant and said we had to do this and that and the other. When we got a man to look at the roof, he said it would cost at least £200. When we asked about fireproofing the staircase from asbestos, he said that would be about £250. In all, £450. As always, we prayed about it. We could spend £450 on the place and be tipped out within a week. Was the Lord moving us on? The Pillar of Cloud and Fire on the Move It was then that someone in the prayer meeting said, The pillar of cloud and fire is moving, we must follow. And someone else took it up in prayer, and still another. I was really upset. I thought, we've only just got here. We have just bought a fitted carpet and put up the interline curtains. Surely the Lord is not moving us on. Would the carpet fit another place and the huge curtains? Then somebody else suddenly read a scripture. It turned out that she had never read this scripture before, but she gave it. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many peoples shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he shall teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 verses 2 to 3 To my amazement, one other person had the same passage and read it. And then, to add to my horror, someone else read from Micah 4 verses 1 to 2, which is the exact same scripture as the Isaiah verses. I thought that our prayer meeting was crazy. There was no mountain in Richmond, only Richmond Hill. How could these two scriptures have anything to do with our local situation about finding a house in which to meet? Was it even possible to apply these scriptures to our local situation? After all, it was originally given concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, everyone in the prayer meeting seemed to feel that the Lord was speaking to us about a house somewhere on Richmond Hill. Lord Horbelisha's Home We took the whole matter to the Lord and sought him until we became unanimous. The Lord was indicating a house on Richmond Hill. Thus we began a search for this house on the hill. We discovered from estate agents a number of houses and went to investigate. One of those houses had belonged to Lord Horbelisha. It was a magnificent house with a great garden, a ballroom with white panelling, gilt decoration and parquet flooring. It seemed the perfect place to meet. There was another large room, lined ceiling walls and floor, with cobalt blue Italian mosaic and a sunken Roman bath which seemed to be a perfect baptistry. 
it appeared to clinch the matter for us. In 1953 to 1954, this was going for £7,500. We prayed about it, but not a penny came in. Ancaster House We also looked at Ancaster House, a beautiful large house on the top of Richmond Hill, with its own garden and a gate into Richmond Park. It had the most beautiful Cumberland green slate roof. Once again we prayed about it. It was valued at between £7,000 and £8,000, but nothing came. We looked at other houses also, but it seemed remarkable to us that not a single pound was given towards any of them. Halford House On a certain Tuesday morning, I woke up with a sense that I had to do something about a house in which we could meet. I had spoken about a certain house on Richmond Green, which could hardly be called on Richmond Hill. It was for sale, but we had not looked at it. Then I did something which was not natural to me. I decided to go through all the estate agents in East Twickenham and Richmond, one by one. Everywhere I went, I got the same reply that there was nothing available. Finally, I came to Chancellor's, which was near Richmond Railway Station. As I went in, a young man stood up and said, Yes, sir, can I do anything for you? I explained what we needed and said I had noticed in their window the house on Richmond Green advertised, the house which I had wondered about. He told me that they had finally sold the house only that morning and greatly below the asking price. I had explained to him that we were young people and were looking for a house to purchase in which to meet. He said that at present there was nothing available. Nevertheless, he said, let me take down the details. He asked for my address. As soon as he learnt the address, his attitude changed. The family home was in the most highly rated area of East Twickenham. It was at that point that an old gentleman who was sitting in the rear of the office stood up and said how sorry he was that we had not come in earlier. I was only in my early twenties, and I reckoned the older gentleman, with his white flowing hair, was at least eighty, as I am now. We do not have anything suitable for you at present, he said, but I have no doubt that we shall find something. I got up to go and had my back to the old gentleman when he said, Just wait, sir, something comes to my mind. But then it was as if he was talking to himself. As I wheeled round to face him, he was holding his hand to his head and saying, Oh, he would not be interested in that place, especially if he was prepared to pay the price of the house on the green. I broke into his conversation with himself, saying, Where is this house? Oh, sir, he said, be advised, I do not know why I thought of it. It has been on our dead book for thirteen years. No, sir, it is not for you. It has wood-boring beetles, dry rot, and no damp course. It is virtually derelict. Sir, it would be a wild goose chase if you went up there. Wait for us, and we will find you the right place. Then I said, I am not so sure about that. I am rather interested. Where is this house? It's on Halford Road, he said. I told him that I had known Halford Road since I was a child. It was where Auntie Ella lived. He said that it was a school of art and science. I said, I cannot recall any such place on Halford Road. He said, Sir, it has been there since 1710. Well, I said, I'm very interested. Oh, sir, he replied, do be advised, you are just wasting your time. It will only be a load of trouble. No, I exclaimed, I would like to see it. 
All right, he replied. If that is what you want, all right, I will send someone up with the key. Then we arranged for the time to be at 2pm that same day. The Condition of Halford House Thus, at 2pm, Ken Douglas, Ernest Townsend and myself waited outside the door. It was not one of the young men that came, and certainly not the old man, but a young lad with a huge key. He inserted the key in the front door and had to more or less swing on it to open it. The door creaked open and the first thing that hit us was the smell. There were holes in the floor. We had to be careful where we walked. Fungus was growing on the walls. Plaster had fallen away onto the ground. There was no electricity, only gas brackets. When we went upstairs to what is now the library, the handle of the door came away in our hands. Then, when we got hold of the door, a whole part of the door came away and crumbled into powder. I went through the whole place thinking, Oh no, Lord. A scripture came to me, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. James 1 verse 17a I thought, This is not good or perfect, and therefore can it be a gift from God? All I could think about was the amount of work we would have to do. The other brothers, however, were amazed. Here is this place in the centre of Richmond, with much space. It would be possible to seat 100 people in the ground-floor room, and if the upstairs was renovated, at least 300. The Purchase of Halford House It is noteworthy that as a fellowship, nearly every major move we had to make in our history always originated on the day we had our main prayer meeting. It was a Tuesday, and that evening was our main prayer time. So we three brothers decided to present to the whole fellowship what had happened during the day. We would not tell them how we felt in order not to influence them, but to let the Lord lead all of us clearly as a body. The trustees of Halford House wanted £3,000 for it. We all sought the Lord and became of one mind that this was the place. It was on Richmond Hill, but on the lower part of it we came to a unanimous decision to offer £200. One must remember that except for one family, we were all in our teens and twenties, and most of us students. To us, therefore, £200 was an enormous sum of money. It was thus, in faith, that we sent the letter offering £200. We received a reply almost immediately. Could we reconsider because they felt our offer was too little? We did more than reconsider. We sought the Lord, decided to double the sum, and added the £50 we had in hand, which came to £450. We received the trustees' response within a week. They said they believed we were going to do a good work amongst young people, and that although the sum was small, they would accept the offer, providing we paid in cash within seven days. Now we were overjoyed but we realised we had only seven days in which to pay. We had taken a position financially that was absolute. We never asked for money, we never advertised our needs, and those of us who worked for the fellowship never asked for wages, but trusted the Lord. Within the week, the £400 came, including a gift from New York of £23 from a sister who had heard about her work in Richmond, but did not know about our need. What is amazing is the fact that if we had paid £450 for renewing the old nightclub premises, which we were in, we would have lost everything. 
Literally two months later, when we were just about to come into Halford House, every person in the whole of the old arcade, all the shopkeepers there, were suddenly given one week's notice to get out. Overnight, Burton's sold the property to Marks and Spencers, who were in favour with the council, and they gave them the go-ahead for redevelopment. We would have spent £450 on a new roof and fireproofing, and the whole thing would have been pulled down. Some of the shopkeepers were angry with us. I remember one of them, whom I had known from childhood, saying, Fancy you Christians treating your friends like that. He was Jewish. You Christians can never be trusted, he said. You knew. I said, we did not know. He said, come off it, of course you knew. You have been searching for a house these last months. They gave you the tip-off because you're a Christian organisation. I said, no, they did not. We prayed about it and God gave us the tip-off. Later, he gave me a beautiful oil painting of the Austrian Alps, which I treasure. He was the only one who had managed to negotiate a 16-year lease. The rest of us were given a one-week notice. To move out, he got a handsome sum of money for each of those years. Thus, we would have spent £450 and been tipped out and the whole lot pulled down for redevelopment. Instead, the Lord provided £450 for the purchase of Halford House. The pillar of cloud and fire had certainly moved, and by the grace of God we moved with him. We hardly knew what we had purchased. In the residential part of the house lived an old music professor and his wife. They had an old dog that was white with age and used to howl every time we sang a hymn. They also had a cat, so old that it had a relaxed back and its stomach dragged on the ground, and an old hen that was the last of 14 hens they had owned during the war years. These three slept together in the same basket. The Halars paid £1.50 a week for renting the residential part of the house and the garden. We had also inherited what we thought was an artist, an aged lady in her late 80s, who lived across the garden in a one-room building with her cats. All of this we were to discover little by little. The Remarkable Story of Margaret Tricky It was one thing to have bought Halford House in a miracle worked by God. It was another matter to consider how the house would be cared for and managed. Margaret Tricky was a gift of God to the fellowship at Halford House. When we bought the property, we wondered how we were going to care for it. Margaret offered herself, saying that she believed the Lord had spoken to her clearly. She had joined the fellowship whilst we were meeting in the Astor Club. When Margaret was in her early twenties, she contracted poliomyelitis. Her condition was so bad that she could not move a single part of her body except her eyeballs. At one point, the doctors thought that she would be in an iron lung. Amazingly, the Lord healed her. However, the doctors who cared for her said that she would only be able to work in certain spheres, such as as a children's nurse. She would never be able to shoulder a strenuous job. Margaret was born in Kaifeng, Henan, China, to missionary parents. Her mother died two weeks after giving birth to her. She was one of seven children. She came to the Lord early and devoted her life to him. She was greatly influenced by brother T. Austin Sparks. It was only natural that we brothers wondered whether Margaret would be able to cope with the heavy duties of caring for and managing Halford House. 
As we sought the Lord about this, we became convinced that it was a genuine call of God she had heard. We prayed for an especial anointing of grace and power for her. The years that followed proved that Margaret was called of God. Not only did she look after the house, but she cooked for all who were there daily. We had students from many nations living with us and seeking to learn from the Lord at Halford House. There could be anywhere between 10 and 20 people for lunch each day. Margaret cooked beautiful meals on a very small budget. Everyone used to wonder how she could do it. Except for periodic migraines, which would lay her out for a day, she shouldered all the onerous duties. Spiritually, she knew the Lord in a deep and powerful way and was a very real and alive contribution to the life of the fellowship. Her miraculous story is interwoven with the history of the fellowship of believers at Halford House. She was an eyewitness of most of the miracles which God worked for us. May you know the provision of the Lord. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus.